Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irina Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. All views expressed in this podcast are my own and not my employers. And the same goes for any guests on this podcast. I am recording again without Michelle because we wanted to bring you breaking news information as quickly as possible. This episode is a sequel to our most recent episode with Professor Krista Laser, in which she spoke about being asked out on a date by the then hiring chair of the George Mason University, Antonin Scalia Law School, former Professor Joshua Wright, when Krista was a job applicant. Today, we bring you part two of one of legal academia's most significant hashtag MeToo situations yet, which is an exclusive interview with another one of Josh's alleged victims, Professor Brandy Wagstaff. We are thankful to have with us today Professor Brandy Wagstaff, an adjunct professor at the George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School. After Professor Krista Laser broke the silence about having been allegedly victimized by former GMU professor and former FTC commissioner Joshua Wright, three other women stepped into the public space with their own stories about him. Brandy was one of them. Brandy is a 2009 magna cum laude graduate of GMU Law and became an adjunct professor there pretty much as soon as she graduated. She also serves as legal counsel for litigation in the criminal section's Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit at the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. She previously worked in the office's Disability Rights Section, before which she completed a clerkship on the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. During her time as a JMU student, she was a writing fellow, the editor-in-chief for the George Mason Civil Rights Law Journal, an active participant in moot court, and a research assistant for two professors. A recent article in Law.com discussed that Brandy alleges she both received reports from students about Josh Wright and had a sexual relationship herself with him when she was his student and research assistant starting in 2006. She felt compelled to speak out, according to the article, after other women spoke up because she wanted to, quote, corroborate and support these young women and maybe other women who have felt victimized by him or spoke out against him, end quote. According to the same piece, Brandy received complaints about Wright's behavior over the years from many of her students, quote, how it continued, how it got worse, how the students knew about it, and how uncomfortable it made them, end quote, which she says she brought to the school's attention. Brandy stated in this context that she got the impression from conversations with certain administrators that this was a, quote, unquote, open secret, and she felt like Wright was, quote, unquote, a little bit untouchable. She stated, quote, I'm glad that as a result of these allegations and the Title IX investigation, that he's no longer a tenured faculty with the law school, end quote, but that she felt, quote, something should have been done sooner, end quote. We are able to bring you today for the first time Brandy's full story. Brandy, thank you so much for being here with me. I know this isn't easy. Diving right in, could you tell our listeners a bit about your time as a law student at GMU and your interactions with then-professor Josh Wright? Yes, absolutely. And first, I want to thank you for having me on your podcast. And I also just wanted to emphasize before we get started that I am speaking in my personal capacity only, not as an employee of George Mason University's law school, not as an employee of the Department of Justice, just in my personal capacity. 
So I was an older student when I went to law school. I had already been working and had a career at the Department of Justice. And I started law school when I was in my early 30s. And I had adolescence at that time. I had two, two um, preteen, one preteen and one teenager at the time I started law school. Um, so I was an older student and I was uh, taking uh, my first year contracts class and a professor Wright was my first year contracts professor. So that is how I immediately met him from my first uh, week of law school was uh, him as a professor for my contracts class. He was a very likable professor. He was younger than me. He's four years younger than me. He was very engaging. He was very young. All the students really liked him. I myself admired him. He was a very good teacher, very engaging in the classroom, very friendly, very open to having the students be friendly with him, open to us using his first name as opposed to calling him professor, just very much kind of really endeared himself to to the students. And so I found him to be very helpful in giving me great advice after the first semester when I did not do as well as I expected on his first uh, final exam, because contracts was a two semester long course, a year long course. And he gave me great advice. And I was really just interested in working with him. Now I knew that he was working in a field that I had no interest of ever going into myself, but I felt like I could learn a lot from him, especially because he was very enthusiastic about my interest in academia. Because at that time in law school, I really did want to pursue an academic career after law school. And he was very much, very readily able to, wanting to give me advice on that. So I found him to be very helpful. So I pursued a working relationship with him. And he agreed that I could be one of his research assistants. And that started after my first year. So it was then in my second year of law school that our relation, working relationship started and then uh, developed into uh, something that ended up becoming less professional and more personal. And that included us eventually engaging in a sexual relationship. So if there's more details you'd like to hear about how that kind of evolved, I'm happy to go a little bit into that. The reason that it was very interesting to read about Elise and Angela's accounts in the Law 360 article was because it sounded so familiar. And even reading the email that Krista Laser shared when she initially broke the story and made allegations against him, it was so familiar. Just the tone of the email, the voice and everything. It's like, wow, like... I can probably find similar, you know, messages and stuff like that as well, because that is definitely Josh Wright's voice. So that was all just very similar to that. You know, the relationship evolved into flirting and then evolved into engaging in sexual activity. Now, this was almost 20 years ago. So, of course, my memory is a bit foggy as to a lot of the details, but the essence of our sexual relationship was engaging in sexual activities in his office. That is how our sexual relationship evolved. 
Um, it was very odd to me because there were times where he came to my apartment or he invited me to a hotel room or he took me on a trip to a conference in Boston. And I always found it very odd and confusing that during those times that I was alone with him, he did not initiate or engage in sexual activity with me, but it always happened in his office. And so I found that to be very odd, almost like thinking in the back of my mind during these times, it's like, huh, he, he must have, um, I felt in my mind that he had some kind of, that he got some kind of extra pleasure or got off on the fact that he was doing this in almost like plain view, you know, in his office where people were coming and going, where other professors were next door, sometimes where someone would come and knock on the door, you know, just very like high risk type of situation, right? Because like I said, there were times when we were alone where no risk of someone would walk in on us and he would not initiate or engage in sexual activity with me. So I found that to be very odd and started to make me a little bit uncomfortable. At the same time, I started to hear because I had I had confessed to one of my classmates that I was close to at the time that I was engaging in this relationship with Josh and come to find out that a good friend of his who was a year behind us, which would have been the first year that Josh Wright was teaching, also ended up in a sexual relationship with him that did not end well, that ended with her being very upset or broken up about it. I don't know the details of it, but that clued me into the fact that I was not special. I was not the only one that this was happening to. And that's part of the thing. Like when, when, when the relationship started with Josh, I felt like I was special. I was getting the attention of this, you know, up and coming hotshot lawn economics professor um, who's so brilliant and so smart, and he wants to spend time with me. He's attracted to me. You know, I felt like I was like, oh wow, this is this is something. You know, maybe something you know special. And then come to find out later on that this is just something that he does. And shortly after that, things with him started to cool off. And I saw, visibly saw him turning his attention to a new student, a student that was a 1L in his class at that time. It was a very interesting dynamic because at that time, you know, I'm in my 30s and I said to myself, you know, this is my fault. This is my bad. I made bad choices. I got into this relationship with one of my professors. I'm feeling hurt over it. But, you know, I have no one to blame but myself. I'm older. I'm more mature. I should know better. You know, and I just kept, and to this day, I keep telling myself that story, kind of like, I blame myself. I blame myself. But as soon as I found out that he was taking advantage of younger women, and the, one of the women that I saw and had strong suspicions that he was trying to start a relationship with or or of that sort was someone that was in her early 20s. And I had a very awkward situation where one day I reached out to him because I wanted to get paid for my research time. And he said, come to the office and I will write you a check. And this is when he had started to kind of cool things off without saying anything, just suddenly just like would become uncommunicative, 
or he would be unresponsive. And I could tell that he was just kind of like keeping me at a distance. And I did not know why, but I did not confront him about it. So this was during that time. And so I went to his office and he says, let's go down to the faculty room and I'll write you the check there. And I'm like, that's odd. Like, why would he want to go to the faculty room? He could, we're in his office. We, we go into his office all the time. We spend a lot of time in this office. Why is he taking me out? And we went down and he wrote the check and we chatted for a bit and we came out and I saw that young woman waiting by his door. So I don't know if she had been in there or he had a meeting planned with her and didn't want her to see me in there. Like, I don't know what it was, but that was like kind of hurtful and also suspicious to me that he must be starting to or wanting to engage in a relationship with this young woman. And uh, also come to find out through some other classmates that there was another student at that time, not someone who was a research assistant to him, but just someone that was a very attractive young lady in our school, like one of the more attractive women in our school at that time, that he was also engaging in a sexual relationship with her as well. And come to find out that a lot of my classmates knew about this, knew about me or had suspicions about me and him and knew about or had suspicions about me and or sorry about him and other students. I am finding this out after the fact because I've had so many of my former classmates and so many former students and current students reach out to me after I shared my story on Twitter and shared with me what they knew at that time, what they suspected at that time. So again, this is like a, a situation where among the students, it's an open secret. Everyone knows about it. Everyone suspects this is going on. Everyone can see objectively that, that, that Professor Wright is giving special attention and spending time and probably engaging in inappropriate relationships with his students, with his, some of his female students. And so that is essentially what really upset me was the fact that I didn't feel taken advantage of. And maybe I was taken advantage of. Maybe I'm giving myself too much credit because I was older than him. I was more mature, but I did not feel or I did not tell myself that I was a victim or being taken advantage of. I recognized that it was inappropriate to be doing this. Like I recognize that a professor should not be sleeping with their students. And that is a very inappropriate thing to do. But I felt like I was a willing participant in it and just as much to blame for it at that time. But looking back through the lens of more experience and now I'm like 50 years old and now I, you know, have more insight into sexual misconduct and, you know, what that means and, and how that evolves and, and how easily women can be taken advantage of in a, a workplace or in an academic setting by people in power. And although I told myself that I was not this victim and I am not this victim, I was his student. I did rely on him for professional recommendations, for professional advice, and he readily promised me these things 
and these favors and none of them materialized, right? Things really cooled off. Like I remained his research assistant throughout my time there, which was for three years because I graduated in four years because I was working full-time and going part-time. And the work that he gave me was very much minimal and different than the work that he gave a lot of his other research assistants at that time. You know, I got to do the editing and site checking of articles and stuff like that, where they would get to engage in more um, substantive research and, and, and provide more substantive help with his academic pursuits. So I um, felt like I wasn't getting as good work as I could. Uh, the promises for helping me get a clerkship never materialized. And essentially, you know, it was always like, yeah, I'm doing this. Yes, I'm helping you. Yes, yes, of course. I, I, I'm always on your side. I got your back, everything. But I just felt like that was a lot of bluff and none of it really materialized. And luckily, I did not and was never planning to go into the field of antitrust, right? So I wasn't relying on him so much for like professional recommendations in that field or anything. I was able to obtain a clerkship on my own and I was able to return to the DOJ through the honors program, through my own hard work and skills. But it was a bummer. I really wanted to pursue academia. I really wanted to have the chance to do an appellate clerkship. And those were things that he had promised he would help me with that just never quite materialized. Whether that was because our uh, sexual relationship cooled off and ended, I don't know. Um, or whether that's just the type of person he is where he likes to sound like he's super helpful and this great guy who's there for his students and will go above and beyond and just just never follows through. I don't know. But I just remember being disappointed, being felt like I was made a fool of, especially when I learned that, oh, I was one of many uh, students that he, he did this with, um, but really just felt very much taken advantage of and felt like I was duped. And that was bad enough. But when I was a professor, which I was I started immediately teaching, and he had returned from his brief commissioner post at the FTC, I started hearing rumors from students. I had students starting to come to me about how uncomfortable Josh Wright made them. Not because that he was doing anything to them, but because of how obvious he was being with some of the women in their class and how he was clearly favoring them, engaging in sexual relationships with them openly, you know, in a way that was making everyone uncomfortable and disgusted. That was that was really upsetting because at that point I was like, wait. I sort of gave him a pass. I'm like, oh, he's in his 20s. He's kind of drunk on power. And, you know, all these young women that are around the same age as him, like, okay. But, but, but when I started hearing about this again, when he returned from the FTC, I'm like, 
wait, he's still doing this. Like he hasn't grown out of this. Like this is something that he's like, this is so inappropriate. He's getting older. He's getting more powerful. Now he's a former FTC commissioner. Now he's this very prestigious tenured professor. You know, he's still engaging in these inappropriate relationships with students, students who are now much younger than him. I'm like, this is, this is not good. And I heard from a number of students from around the, you know, 2016, 2017, up till present about how uncomfortable they were about this, how they even knew which classmates that this was happening with, but they weren't willing to share that information. They did not want to, you know, tell on their, on their classmates, but they did want something done. They wanted him to stop doing this. And so that was the first time that I had approached one of the people in the administration to express my concerns in conversation that we had behind closed doors. I didn't have any names that I could give them because I wasn't given permission by the students to give names, but I told them of the concern. At that time, I did not share with them that I had engaged in a an inappropriate relationship with him as well. I, I wasn't ready to, but I did tell them my concerns. I did tell them that this was something that I was aware of that happened when I was a student and I didn't have any names to report to them. They said there wasn't much they could do if I wasn't going to report or share any names. They told me to encourage students to reach out to them directly to report it. I went back to my students, told them as such, None of them felt comfortable going forward, and they kind of just left it at that. And I continued over the next several years to hear reports from my female students. I, I, am, I develop close mentorship relationships with a lot of my students. I teach like two to three classes a semester, so I have a lot of, and I'm the Civil Rights Law Journal's uh, faculty advisor, and I'm the faculty advisor for the Moot Court. And so I, I engage with the students a lot. I have a lot of interaction with students, um, a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings with students in, in the writing program that I teach, um, a lot of uh, small group settings in the moot court um, appellate advocacy class that I teach. And so I get to know the students a little bit more. And so I think that they felt comfortable, uh, one, as I'm a female professor, two, I'm a female professor that works in civil rights law, and um, three, I try to create a safe space for my students. So I have had students confide into me over the years about how uncomfortable Josh Wright's behavior has made them, um, what they've noticed, what they've experienced, what they've seen happen. And so I again reached out to the school administrator in 2020 and brought up the complaints again. And this time, because I felt it was the only way I was gonna get somewhere, said, I know for a fact that this stuff happens and is happening because it happened with me. And so I divulged my own personal relationship and experience at that time. I still was not comfortable of filing a Title IX complaint. I was never interested in getting any recourse for myself. I was just only interested in getting them to do something to stop this behavior. But I was also afraid of publicly outing myself because I felt fear of retribution from Josh Wright. He's a very powerful person and he has a lot of sway with the school. And at that time, Dean Butler was still there and they were very, very, very close. 
Uh, Dean Butler is is the one that recruited him back from the FTC to come work as a tenured professor to head up the Global Antitrust Institute. And so he had a lot of power and sway with the dean because of their close relationship. So I definitely was not comfortable officially reporting my situation. And again, I was told that in I was told that a Title IX complaint was necessary to get something to happen. And apparently this person did report to the Title IX office my specific situation. And the Title IX office reached out to me. And again, I was not comfortable or felt safe coming forward officially. So it wasn't until the Title IX office reached out to me in 2022, because apparently this administrator shared my name with the investigator at that time about Elise Dorsey's Title IX complaint that I finally, after much, much back and forth, both internally and just talking to trusted uh, people in my life, decided to give an official statement. I was scared because I was told that, yes, any statement I made, Josh Wright would read it, right? So that scared me. But I was like, someone filed a Title IX complaint I'm in a position to corroborate and support this complaint. I knew nothing about the complaint. I didn't know who it was at the time, you know, because they couldn't divulge that. I didn't know what it was about at the time, but I wanted to do what I could to support whoever this person was because I felt like I hadn't done enough and I definitely felt like the school hadn't done enough. And while I feel like there was more I could have done and I regret that I didn't do more, there was definitely more that I thought the school could have done, even if it wasn't, even if there wasn't an official Title IX complaint filed, I felt that the school could have done more, whether it be informally or behind closed doors or anything to stop this behavior uh, from Josh Wright. So I have always been a bit upset about, no bit, that's an understatement. I have always been very upset the fact that he continued to get away with this and he continued year after year to take advantage of new students year after year after year. At this point, I did not know that that was the reason he left the FTC. I did not know that there was the reason he left Wilson Sonsini. I did not know that this was something he was doing in other professional uh, settings as well. But I'm not surprised to learn that he he did and he has. But with students and just the obvious knowledge that all the students had, the open secret it was among the student body, it's just shocking to me that more faculty are saying that they weren't aware of it when the students seemed to be completely aware of what was going on. So that just shows you that there's a disconnect between the students and the faculty and the administration. If the students are fully aware of this open secret that Josh Wright is engaging year after year in these inappropriate relationships with his female students, and much of the faculty and the administration allegedly had no idea what was going on, that to me is shocking. Like, if I, as an adjunct professor, was aware that the students knew about this, like, I couldn't be the only one. I am, you know, while I'm technically 
was technically Josh Wright's colleague. I didn't have as much interaction as, with him as any of the other like tenured faculty do, right? Share offices with him, probably chat with him a lot, probably see students coming and going from his office. I know that the professor that was right next to his office at that time that I was engaging in a relationship with him, I'm like, how can he not know what was happening? right? Like he's right there in the office next to him. He sees me going in. He sees me close the door. Suddenly the lights are off in the office and neither Josh Wright nor I have left the office. Like, like, could he possibly have been that clueless to not know what was happening with me and other students that were going in and out of his office at, and staying there and doors locked and lights out and stuff like that? I don't know. It just seems odd to me that since he was engaging in these sexual activity in his office almost exclusively and seemed to like to do so, it is just shocking to me that those that shared office space with him would be clueless as to what was going on. So I feel like that there must be faculty members that knew. And the administrator that I spoke with left me with the impression that that, yeah, people knew that he was engaging in relationships with his students. Now, whether they were consensual or not, I don't know what people thought or felt about that. But again, when it's a professor who's in a position of power and you're engaging in these relationships with much younger women who also work for you and depend on you for professional recommendations and advice and assistance, like that is an inappropriate power imbalance. Like that is a power imbalance that I see even in the work I do in the human trafficking arena, right? Where people who are in more vulnerable positions are exploited in this way and exploiting students who admire you, who trust you, who confide in you, who believe that you're on your, their side who think that they're the only ones you're engaging in these relationships with, who think that they're special, who don't know that this is something that you do year after year with other students, you know, that puts someone in a very, very vulnerable position that allows them to easily be taken advantage of by someone that's older, more powerful and more mature. Brandy, what a story, what an account. Could you tell our listeners a bit more about what it is about the culture, either of law schools generally or GMU specifically, that makes students afraid of speaking out about certain things? I know I can only speak specifically to my experiences at GMU Law School. Um, hard for me to say about culture of law schools in general, but I would assume that there is some of this at other law schools as well. But it's an environment, especially at GMU, where those that are in leadership or on the faculty are mostly white males. GMU in particular is a is a conserv known to be a conservative or libertarian focused law school. There are not a especially back then, and hopefully this is changing, but there are not a lot of minority representation uh, among the faculty or the student body or the staff. And so there's been a, 
GMU's reputation has been tarnished a lot in recent years. And a lot of that did become publicly problematic, I think, with the renaming of the law school. So, right. It, um, well, I can't remember the exact year that they renamed it, but when it was recently renamed the Antonin Scalia Law School and Above the Law just had a field day with it. And then with the recent COVID pandemic and kind of like the racial reckoning that was happening after George Floyd's murder, a lot of students start to, and this was post Me Too movement as well, which is also something that, you know, is fairly recent and fairly new. I feel like a lot of students started to feel empowered to uh, speak out and to complain about some of the culture and problems that they felt were happening at the law school, whether it was uh, minorities and women who experienced a lot of microaggressions, whether it was problems with professors in class saying inappropriate or sexist things, and whether it was this open knowledge of professors and Professor Wright in particular engaging in these inappropriate relationships with students and the students seeing that this was happening openly and felt probably like that was something that professors got away with. And so I think it just lends itself to this culture where the students feel like either they weren't being heard or felt that if they came forward, that they wouldn't be heard. And so, yeah, so I think in those recent years and when the name change happened back in 2016, the reputation of the law school publicly began to be problematic and students started to feel empowered to speak out and to speak up but then we're seeing no real change themselves, even after speaking out and speaking up about things in the law school, whether it was racial bias or sexism or, you know, problems with, you know, uh, inappropriate sexual relationships. I don't know, but there wasn't really any change that was happening. Um, and I think the students, based on the conversations I've had with many students, felt very frustrated and angry about that. So, you have a lot of white males in positions of power within the school where in a school that doesn't feel very welcoming and open to some women and some minorities, at least based on accounts that I've heard from students, I think just created this culture that the law school and as a professor of the law school myself, despite the fact that I'm an adjunct law professor, think it's our responsibility to try to rehabilitate. Now, I always try to keep this open door policy with students and try to make them feel like I'm a safe space that they can talk to about these issues. But they also know I have very little power to do much about it. Back in 2021, I believe we created a, a DEI task force. This was at the impetus of students who were pushing for the creation or for, for some change um, and created this DEI task force, which I, you know, applied to be a part of because, again, as a person who has a civil rights background, I always felt like 
I could be a person in the school on the faculty where students could feel like they could come and talk about these issues or have a professor who was knowledgeable about these issues. And so I joined the task force along with other students and faculty members. The task force culminated in a written report and recommendations that we then uh, presented to the new incoming dean, Dean Ken Randall, and that was the last I heard of it. So I don't know. I didn't see necessarily know of or see of any changes that were implemented from our report and recommendation. I certainly didn't feel openly that I saw in, um, any changes, but that didn't mean that there wasn't stuff being done behind the scene that I didn't know about or wasn't a part of. But it was kind of just like, I felt like after we submitted the report, like I never heard, we never heard back about it. You know, like we never, there was never follow up. There was never a continuance of us meeting as part of the task force. It was kind of like the task force did its job and now it doesn't exist anymore. And so I don't know what happened with that and what their plans are to move forward with any of the recommendations we made. But the goal was to try to change some of the culture and atmosphere at the school to make students feel safer, feel safer, feel more welcomed, feel like they have resources, especially students who are minorities or first generation law students, students that don't have a lot of privilege or power or resources coming into law school, ways that they could feel more welcome at the law school, ways that they can feel more a part of the law school community, where they can feel safe coming forward if there's issues, where they feel that they have resources to help them through the law school process. And yeah, I was hoping that 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 would really push some change with the school and maybe change is slow. Maybe there are things in the works, but I don't know about, but that was the goal of the task force because we did recognize, especially the students, that there were a lot of problems with the culture and atmosphere of the school and the school's reputation in general um, was really low at that time. So I'm going to switch gears a bit because there is one last topic that I definitely want to get your comments on, Brandy. Yesterday, which was August 24th, 2023, a defamation lawsuit was filed by Josh Wright and his attorney in the Circuit Court of Fairfax County in Northern Virginia. And I'm going to read from the complaint and, uh, and then get your thoughts on it. Quote, defendants Elise Dorsey and Angela Landry, both scorned former lovers and law students of plaintiff Joshua Wright, have embarked on a vendetta to destroy his reputation, portray themselves as hashtag MeToo victims, and make a fortune in the process. Their malicious lies have caused enormous damage. First, they targeted his employers and his clients and threatened further reputational destruction if he did not pay them several million dollars. When he refused, they went to the press, claiming in a Law 360 article that they submitted to romantic partnership with Mr. Wright because they felt pressured and fearful of retaliation and portrayed him as a sexual predator. In well-documented reality, however, defendants both pursued Mr. Wright at various times over the last decade. They had consensual adult relationships with him, and when those relationships ended, both were heartbroken because they had strong feelings for him. Defendants have been devastatingly effective in their coordinated campaign to destroy Mr. Wright's reputation. He files this lawsuit to hold them accountable for their lies." End quote. Brandy, your thoughts and also your response if anyone were to say that Maybe you are a jilted lover 
that wants to come after Josh Wright after all this time because you were not the one. It's, it's, this is why I came forward because I knew I had a feeling that this defamation suit was coming after I read the quote from his attorney in the Law 360 article where the uh, his attorney accused them of making false allegations and trying to extort millions of dollars behind closed doors. I was like, I have no stake in the game, right? I don't care what Josh Wright did to me. Like, yeah, it was an unpleasant experience overall. Uh, but I'm not some jilted lover who wants to destroy his relationship. I could have been doing that for decades, right? This happened two decades ago, and I'm just now saying something. The, that goes to show you, and, and there are other women that he engaged in inappropriate student-professor relationships with that are not coming forward because there's that fear. There's that fear of having what happened, what is happening to Elise and Angela happen to them, right? I still have that fear, right? I didn't want to come out because I'm afraid of the retribution and retaliation from Josh Wright. I'm afraid of being slapped with a defamation suit. I'm afraid of having my career ruined. So this is something that I do and I'm coming out despite my fear because I feel like I'm in a position, especially as a much older person who experienced this almost two full decades ago, who can corroborate and support these women and any other women who are too afraid to come forward with their stories. Yes, when you are in the relationship with Josh Wright, Initially, you believe that this is a consensual romantic relationship, but hindsight is twenty twenty. because once you are out of that situation, once you aren't being manipulated, and once you have that kind of distance to reflect on what was happening to you, you realize how inappropriate it was. You realize how much you were taken advantage of. You realize how much you were manipulated and lied to. And that is inappropriate no matter what. Like a professor should never be doing that with a student. Never. Like that is inappropriate to take advantage of vulnerable young women who think that you are their only romantic partner and that you're there to help them with their career and that you support them and that you love them and that you're by their side or whatever it is that that any of these women have felt when they are in these relationships with Josh Wright, whether it's purely sexual or whether it's sexual and romantic or whether whatever it is, it is inappropriate because there is always a power imbalance. Even in my situation, even though I was older than Josh Wright and had an established career and was not looking to go into antitrust law, there was still a power imbalance. He was still my professor. He was still my employer. He still held power over me as to professional recommendations. And he still long after held power over me because I was afraid to share with people what happened to me and how terrible it made me feel and how inappropriate I found it to be in hindsight because I was afraid of ever publicly disclosing to anyone but a few very close people in my circle what had happened to me because I was afraid of if Josh Wright ever finding out that I spoke about this. 
that I would be retaliated against. He holds a lot of power and sway, not only just in the antitrust world, but in general in academia. And who am I, you know, but a woman, you know, easily labeled as a scorned woman. Like that is an easy label to slap on any woman who comes forward to complain about sexual misconduct. We see it time and time again. I think my my uh, one of my um, good friends and former classmates who does employment law referred to it as the as the sluts and nuts defense, right? Like these women are crazy. They're scorned. They're crazy. They are, you know, they got into this willingly. They're the ones that engaged me for a sexual relationship, and now they're at, now they're just scorned women, just you know, trying to ruin my reputation, right? Every woman, every woman who comes out and speaks out about sexual misconduct always fears that happening to them, them being accused of lying, them being accused of being scorned and just trying to get back at their uh, former lover, right? Every single woman knows that that is likely to be, that's what they're going to be accused of if they come out. So Angela and Elise knew that this was a risk and they did this. They knew that this was a risk that they could be sued for defamation. They knew even if they weren't sued for defamation that there was publicly coming out, there was going to be backlash against them. No one does that willingly. No one wants to take this on. I still am questioning whether I made the right decision to publicly come out. Uh, On one hand, I, I regret never doing more, not coming out sooner and not pushing this issue even harder with the school and not officially filing my own Title IX complaint in the hopes that maybe it would get him to stop doing this with other students because I, again, wasn't concerned about me. I was concerned about my students. So I regret not doing more. But on the other hand, I, I, I'm, I'm doubting whether I made the right decision doing what I'm doing now by speaking publicly against this. Am I going to suffer retaliation and retribution? Am I going to lose my job at George Mason? Is it going to affect my career at DOJ? Like what's going to happen to me? What do I need to worry about? You know, I am a single mother working two jobs to take care of a disabled adult child all on my own. Like I am scared. I don't have a lot of time to to defend a lawsuit. And I certainly have no money to do it. So I'm doing this at a big personal risk. And so were Elise and Angela and Krista by coming out and speaking out publicly against Josh Wright. What he did was inappropriate. It doesn't matter if at the time that he thought or he tells himself or anyone perceives that these women were engaged in these relationships consensually. It's never fully consensual when there is that great power and balance. Brandy, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here today and for telling your story and for sharing with the world uh, what I think is very important information and that, you know, hopefully will hopefully will help a lot of people out there, whether they're tied to this situation or other situations that share resemblance with it. And I would like to say to anyone who is listening to this, who is a former student, a current student, 
or just any woman at all that has gone through anything like this, um, that has had any kind of experience with Josh Wright that made them feel uncomfortable, that they felt was inappropriate, even if they didn't realize at the time that it was inappropriate. I am here if you want to talk. We can do so. I just want you to know that you have a safe space if you want to speak to someone about it. And I, I want to know and I want to hear from from my students, both uh both uh, past and current and future, what more I can do as an adjunct faculty at the school? What more can I do to make this a safe space for students where students can feel like they are not afraid to speak out? Like, I want to know what I can do more and what the school can do more. So if you don't feel comfortable talking to others at the school, but you would feel comfortable talking to me you know, please reach out. I'm easy to find. I'm very responsive and I'm here to support you. Again, thank you so much, Brandy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. All our platforms are accessible at strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com. There's no the in there. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, or Mastodon, where we are on the Falsedon server with two S's. We also appreciate support to defray our costs to run the podcast. You can help us out at swipestrangers at coffee.com, which is ko-fi.com. I would like to thank my husband, Carlos Frini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kujuklu for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone. Mm-hmm.